film is a sort of dreamscape. You get this kind of groundless passion. That's an interesting phrase. Yeah. Hello, welcome to In Frequencies, the ICA podcast. My name is Nicholas Raffin and I'm the film program manager at the ICA. You are about to listen to a conversation between John Smith, hosted by Carol Morley, that took place on the 1st of October 2022 at the ICA. The event marked the opening of the retrospective, or so-called introspective, of the entire work of John Smith, spanning from 1972 to 2022. That program, the opening program, was comprised of eight works representative of all of the career of John Smith. Beside being a close friend to John Smith, as you will hear in the podcast, Carol Morley's directing, producing, and writing rich career is particularly relevant when discussing the work of one of the most pioneering British filmmakers. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome to Programme 4 of the John Smith Introspective, 1972 to 2022, 50 films from 50 years. Um, each screening is happening on a Thursday at or around 8 p.m., the majority of which are at Close Up Film Center and some are at the ICA here. Um, tonight we're very fortunate to welcome Carol Morley, who will be in conversation with John after we have watched his films. There will also be an opportunity for the audience to ask questions. I don't know how many of you were um, here for the launch event on October the 1st, but the audience were able to ask questions then as well. And um, one gentleman asked whether John was in possession of the homoeroticism in his films, with specific reference to the first film that's screening in tonight's program, Om. I um, direct your attention to the program titles, the titles of the films tonight. Om, Slow Glass, Dungeness, Gargantuan, and of course, The Black Tower. So be mindful of the questions that you ask. There was um, one other question asked by a gentleman who's also in attendance tonight. Um, who, who began by complimenting John Smith's singing voice. Of course, John, many of you will be aware, often sings in his work. And he asked um, if John had ever considered producing a Christmas record. <laughs> and John said no. Um, a little bit of context. One of the films that screened as part of the launch event, which was a music-focused program, is called 7P. And 7P uses as its basis the 12 Days of Christmas. It's a, um, it's a film that was remade by John 20 years later, uh, the title of which is Regression. It is... An incredible, uh, well, to my to my astonishment and to the surprise and delight of the man in the audience that I can announce here tonight, on December the 1st, for our finale event here, with another singer called Jarvis Cocker in conversation with John, we will be releasing the first musical release by John Smith. The title is John Smith Sings Dot 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 Christmas. It may or may not be the first manifestation of a multi-album deal signed by John with the record label Purge. In the unlikely event any of you are unfamiliar with Purge, it has been defined. Has it been defined? It's been. Yeah, it's been defined by. It's. Um, what has it been defined by? Disregard for the music industry and prevailing cultural norms, uh, an accusation it seeks to address in this release by John. <laughs> For more information, you can go to www.purge.xxx. Um, the only other thing I think I have to do is thank uh, our official sponsor, John Smith's Extra Smooth, <laughs> without whom none of this would, 
would have been possible. Um, thanks to the brewery in Tadcaster, I have one can signed by the artist. And this is available to the first person in this auditorium to bark. Please welcome the John Smith. Hello, everybody. Thank you for coming. Um, I'm not going to go on for long at all, just about half a minute, probably. Um, but, um, yeah, thank you, Stanley, and thank you, Carol, who's going to talk to me after the screening. And as he said, I hope some of you will have some questions as well that we can address afterwards. Um, just to, I, I think that hopefully the films are self-explanatory. I want them to be self-explanatory anyway. Uh, but just two, two things to tell you. One is, I think we're going to get a warning coming up here anyway about stroboscopic imagery uh, at the beginning of the programme, just to warn you that only one of these films has any unpleasant stuff like that going on in it, and it's only f for about um, 30 seconds, so there's no need to run out. You can always just close your eyes. That film is called Dungeness. It's the third film in the programme. All the others are very, very gentle on the eyeballs, um, in, their, in a way. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, and the other thing I want to tell you is that the... Hang on, which film is it? I changed the running order at the last minute. Well, this, these, these films are all... Um, generally, I programmed everything chronologically, so I didn't have the nightmare of thinking what will go best with whatever. But I did actually change the order slightly so that we didn't end with a one-minute film after a 40-minute film. So the, the fourth film in the programme... Gargantuan is just one minute long. And the reason I'm telling you this is that the, um, the film was actually, it, it, it might be interesting to know the context. The film was commissioned by BBC TV and the Arts Council in the days when they had, BBC Two had an arts magazine program every night of the week called The Late Show, as some of you might remember. Uh, and over several years, they commissioned artists to make these one-minute interventions between the kind of discussions and magazine items in The Late Show. And um, so the brief to make these films was, was uh, to do with the film. Had to be, it could be about whatever you liked, but it had to be one minute long. And as you'll see, uh, that was the impetus to make the film that you see, which is exactly one minute long to the frame. Um, so... I hope you enjoy the programme and uh, and stick around afterwards. Thank you. Um, I think we should give a big round of applause to you. <laughs> um, amazing. I've just thought, John, no one's actually told us how long we can be up here. So I thought we could do an all-nighter. You know, like, keep the bar open. Um, <laughs> um, so I um, studied un under... I studied with John. How do you say that? I don't know. At St. Mai's. He was, he was my tutor. And um, he really taught us all, and me, to look at, look at the world in a, a certain way, but also really made me look at film and so he is my hero <laughs> so this is kind of quite weird you know you know you're my hero don't you yeah yeah <laughs> uh, so this is kind of quite weird at this point to to be here but I do love him and I love his films and he's really completely from the moment I was your student you totally opened my eyes to the world in a in a way I will always thank you for um I read recently something a while ago that somebody wrote about you, uh, that you were um, a maestro of deception. And uh, I disagree. <laughs> I disagree with that because I actually think what I love about what you do is that you, you don't deceive. I think you push us as an audience and film itself to, to reveal itself. So that, that I don't think you deceive. Have you ever regarded yourself as, as deceptive? Yeah, but but uh, at a certain 
but not, hopefully not ultimately. Yeah. You know, I mean, that, and it's very important that basically all is revealed. You know, I mean, but I do lead people up the garden path a lot in the films. You know, so they do. Uh, yeah, you know. I don't see it as deception, though. I see it mm. as playfulness more than yeah, yeah. deceitful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't well, think I see it's a lot of the things yeah. as being like a, a, a dialogue with the with the audience, really. Yeah, that you're sort of is a, hopefully, yeah, yeah. hopefully there is a sense of participation when you're watching the films, and uh, that's the, that's the intention, anyway. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a, it's great to have, have a great big audience like this, yeah. especially after COVID. Who here <laughs> has never seen a John Smith film before? Oh, that's quite exciting. I like that idea. But, but a lot of people have, John. A lot of people have seen your films here. Yeah, where, <laughs> <laughs> where? Wonder where? <laughs> Maybe. Um, so, Black Tower. Let's start with Black Tower, because I remember seeing that for the first time, and I believed it was many towers. Mm -hmm. And um, tell us how many towers there are. Uh, well, I, 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 I was sort of slightly disappointed when I first started showing the films that quite a few people thought there were a, a lot of different towers uh, and other people thought it was a special effect, uh, which at that time would have been impossible to do on 16mm film so convincingly, but um, uh, I guess, you know, unless you were a filmmaker, you wouldn't really know that. Uh, and the reason it was disappointing to me, is to me the film is not, although people do tend to get involved in the narrative aspect of it, the film was very much about the power of language and the power that language has to sort of tell us that things are something other than they really are. So basically, the Black Tower is one building that I filmed from a lot of different angles. And uh, unlike a lot of my work, it comes out of uh, something that I came across in my own life. I, mean, I moved into the house in Leytonstone that you see uh, some of in, the, in um, Slow Glass, uh, in the early 80s, and the view across that you see uh, across the graveyard, you see the last shot of the Black Tower, that was the view from my bedroom window. So I moved into this house and what that, I thought, what's the hell, what the hell is that, you know? And, uh, and, and I was initially interested in it. Uh, I wasn't thinking of any kind of verbal or narrative element to it at all. I was in initially interested in it because I was fascinated by the real kind of non-reflectiveness of this black garden shed shape on the top of this brick plinth. And, uh, and you know, depending on the, where the sun was, very often you would look at it and you couldn't see the joins between the roof and the walls and the walls and the, the other walls. So, so it just looked like this hole cut out of the sky on a plinth, you know. It was like it was, and it was a kind of, it was this kind of, fantastic kind of monument to absence, you know, <laughs> and, it was, and it was very, it was a very powerful, potent thing, so I, I originally started to film, decided I wanted to film it because of, uh, of that, that quality that, that it had, it was going to be just a visual thing, but, um, oh, that's, that's yeah, nice, nice yeah. refreshing, <laughs> thank you, <laughs> um, <clears throat> I'd have had red, actually. Not alcohol, <laughs> <yeah>. White, please. <laughs> uh, but but, yeah. but having done that, I, I, me and my friends who live in, lived in the house together, we started talking about the Black Tower, and we, we, we gave it a name of Hub, and we sort of, like, talked about it as if it was the centre of the universe, and it had this kind of, kind of jokey kind of potency to it. And, um, and after I'd lived there for a couple of weeks, a few weeks, I asked the guy next door... Who, I did, who I'd only recently met and didn't realise that he was quite an eccentric character, I said to him, I said, do you know what that, uh, do you know what that tower is? And he said, yeah, he said, it's the, it's the psychiatric ward of the geriatric hospital. So I think it was quite interesting that he kind of made up this story, <laughs> uh, or he, uh, uh, which attached some kind of intense kind of psychological um, aspect to, the, to this building. I mean, it's a... It's a water tower, you know, it's a Victorian yeah. water tower. But, um, so that, that was really interesting, and it sort of started making me think about maybe doing something around with a narrative element. But what I was interested in doing was making something where, hopefully, it's all about, for me, drawing the viewer into some kind of immersive, psychological, conventional uh, relationship of a... Of a, of a, of a, of a um, psychologically involving 
piece of film, uh, but also spitting you out again. <laughs> so moving backwards and constantly reminding you that you're looking at something which is constructed and then going back in and sort of... So I, I was interested in making these shifts between kind of getting involved in the psychology and then looking at something on an abstract level or a humorous level or, yeah. But it's, it's actually really successful in its narrative. Um, but there's the line in it, isn't it, when, when the character is saying about the impo you know, that their impossibility with understanding narrative, is that, or getting involved in narrative, like they're trying to read a book and they can't, can't understand it. Do you remember that line? There is that line. I don't think so. You no, might have written that one. No, I did, no, no. I, there is. <laughs> I do say uh, I spe I'm spending a lot of time writing this script yeah, and no, um, finding the, the writing of dramatic fiction yeah, extremely it. challenging. That's the line. Yeah. That's the line. That's yeah, the line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, think, I feel like that is telling us all something about the film, and about, to me anyway, how I understand it. And, but it, it's incredible that you weave this narrative while at the same time pushing us away from the idea of narrative. Mm -hmm. I, I just mm -hmm. find that remarkable. So, and mm -hmm. there is something I didn't realize about the film, which you told me, mm -hmm. which is maybe obvious to me now, but how much of, how much of it is there an image on, on the screen? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's about 50%. Yeah. Uh, half the time there's no image on the screen. Uh, nearly always black, but you know, occasionally other colors, monochrome colored fields. Uh, and that's essential to the film because if there is a psychological involvement, I think a lot of it is to do with that withholding of the image. Mm. And, uh, and for, for, for me, the most interesting films are where you don't give too much in an image. I mean, I can't think of there being... I mean, that, that tower block explosion in the Black Tower, mm. that demolition is probably the only dramatic moment in any of my films. I mean, there is no... There is absolutely no drama. That. Very deliberately, very deliberately, because the drama should come from yeah. the, the cut, from the, you yeah. know, from all lots... I, I think drama can create... Is, is made in construction for me. I don't, yeah. I don't want the drama to come from, uh, from showing spectacular events. And um, when I when, actually when I was making the film, I heard about a survey that had been done uh, by BBC TV when um, uh, by BBC when they first started uh, making children's television programs back in the 1950s, I think it would have been. And um, up until that point, children's radio had been around for a really long time, but there hadn't been any children's television. So they started showing children's television and they did a survey amongst children and asked ask them what they thought of, of, um, of children's television. And a very, very common response was, yeah, it's okay, but the pictures are better on the radio. <laughs> and, and I personally, I completely, I completely agree with that. You know I, mean? I can listen to the most awful Radio 4 play and really enjoy it. You know, if I saw that actually acted out on the screen, <laughs> I'd find it... Um, Extraordinary. So, so that that thing of, of imagination is. I like the idea as well. I mean, that, the film is very much made for to be seen. Hopefully, although it was you know, been shown on TV and stuff yeah. like that, but it, it's made to be seen by an audience. And I really like the idea of communal radio. That basically, you know, you've got two hundred people sitting in here. You're all looking at nothing, and they're all imagining different things. <laughs> I don't spend any of any two of you have the same image on your head. <laughs> mm, I love uh, that. It Did might just have been, you know, what am I going to have for dinner tomorrow? <laughs> but, oh, oh, I forgot to buy any toilet roll shit. Uh, but, um, Didn't you go to a radio, radio festival once where you sat in rooms listening to the radio? No. No, you did. You told oh, me. Oh, did I? <laughs> yeah, you did. I, I, I will remember for you. Uh, okay, okay. Yeah, I all misremember. What was it like? Am I deceptive? Is it all right? Um, no, you said it was marvellous. You went somewhere in Europe and you sat in a room and listened to the radio. Yeah. Oh, really? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm, I'm just sorry, attributed I can't, can't elaborate. No, I did, there is a there is a oh, filmmaker called Matt Hulse no, it was you. who did um, who who actually had a thing called the Audible Picture Show, okay. where he did um, as far as I know like basically play audio in cinemas, yeah. but I never went. But well, you lied to me. Else. You are deceptive. <laughs> um, so your voice, <clears throat> Black Tower, mm. it's so important 
to to its feel, to the feel of it, and to the way it's revealed. It's a it's a different kind of narration, I suppose, than some sort of posh, you know, commentary or something. Mm. So mm. tell me about use what what it's like to use your voice and why you use your voice. Mm. Or mm. tell us all. Right? That's a good question. Uh, or you might say the credits at the yeah. end of the back tower. Almost everybody who's credited are people I auditioned to do the voice oh. and didn't use. <laughs> <laughs> so um, some of you may know Gary Stevens, a performance artist who's got a fantastic voice, but yeah. he just made everything sound hilariously funny. So okay. I couldn't use Gary, much as I'd have loved to. Then I used an actor called John Abineri, who, was very, and who, who knew... Um, my colleague Tony Sindon um, was quite friendly with him. But this um, John Abineri was an actor, uh, died several years ago now. He was actually the man carrying the Ferrero Rocher in the advert. Oh, but wow. but uh, <laughs> prior to that, he was um, Shinga Cook in Hawkeye and, Last of the, and the Last of the Mohicans. So he, he's a proper actor. Uh, but... but um, uh, it was unbearable. <laughs> <laughs> he really ha- Too posh. I wouldn't say hammed it up, yeah. but it, it was very. He had a posh yeah. voice, but also very, RP. really, yeah. very, very expressive. Uh, so for me, I, the reason I use my own voice, um, and it's probably different for me than other people, but I want a voice which has as little character to it as possible. And of course for me, I have no character. Probably some of you might think I've got a little bit, but for myself, I haven't got anything. So I, d- I just hear like words being enunciated. And, that, and that's, what I, that's what I want. I don't want, I want the words to do the, the performance. Just like I'm saying I don't show dramatic action, yeah. I don't want dramatic speech either. So... So, sure. um, you know, I mean, I do get a bit excited in the Black yeah. Tower, you know, but, yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, considering the events that are happening, I'm quite, I think I, my, my um, recitation is quite quiet. But, um, but, it, but, but, but um, yeah, that, it's an interesting one for me. So I can cope with my, having initially, you know, when I first used my own voice, and the first film I used my own voice is a film called The Girl Chewing Gum, Back when I was a student, I couldn't bear to listen to it, and I tried all these things like slowing it down, <laughs> speeding it up, putting echo on it, and things. And I thought, oh, I suppose I've got to live with it, you know. But but after a while, you get used to it, and um, and I think my voice got better, you know, after years and years of you know honing it with whiskey and cigarettes. <laughs> I think it's actually, you know, it's got a, it's, like, it's not as squeaky as it used to be, you know. <laughs> um, wow. But um, and. Um, <laughs> So with with the film, do you, how do you feel about it now? Watching it now, what do, because it feels as though because Leytonstone is so much a part of it, and your life in Leytonstone, and mm-hmm. in a way, you, so it would have taken. It, it was over two years you filmed it, mm-hmm. so it's sort of the passing of time as a film in itself. Mm-hmm. But now so much time has passed. Yeah. Can you mm-hmm. sort of elaborate on what it was like to film over two years, and in a way? how that came to be constructed into the, the story as mm. it is. Well, that kind of leads yeah. into Slow Glass, of course, yeah. as well. Yes. You know, I was trying to do that. Oh, you're yeah. going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> do that <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I guess I could... The way in which I would talk about that does lead into Slow Glass, yeah. if I can do that myself. We can lead, yeah, do it. No, 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 no. I wasn't going to do that. Because <laughs> <laughs> when I was making The Black Tower, I... Um, I planned all these shots, so I would go. I went round. I would. I would sort of think, oh, I can see the tower between those two blocks of flats, and when I have a shot here, I can see it over those. Uh, oh, I can see it over some trees. So the protagonist is going to go to the country. That's how the story is written, by the way. Of course, around where I, how I could frame the tower to suggest it was in different locations. So, and I wanted a kind of pastiche of a kind of horror story. So. It was handy that it was over a graveyard <laughs> and you could see it in the grounds of a hospital. So I thought, oh, sickness and death, you know, they're pretty common themes in narrative, that's handy. Uh, but also, you know, I could see it over some trees so that it goes to the countryside. Oh, I can see it over a high wall. Oh, his friends in prison, you know. So that was how the narrative constructed. Narrative is completely irrelevant to me. That yeah. doesn't mean anything whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> Except I wanted it to have. Yeah. But I'm. I'm digressing. What happened during the making of the Black Tower was that I planned these shots, and there's one shot in particular that I 
uh, I was going to shoot from a children's playground and I had this shot planned and um, I was going to have a children's slide in the foreground and in the background you'd see the tower. And I planned the shot and uh, as, I, as we were saying, the shot's made over, film's made over quite a long period of time. I sort of mould things over quite a lot. I went back like a couple of months after I planned the shot to film my slide in the foreground with the tower in the background and the slide wasn't there and I thought... I'm going a bit bonkers here, you know, what's going on? Like this, I've got this shot in my head. Uh, and then I looked down at the asphalt and there was this rectangle, a patch of, you know, darker asphalt where obviously they'd taken the slide away and uh, patched it up. And at that point I started looking and realising how much things were changing all the time and things that we just don't really notice. So that really led into making making slow glass. Um, so it was a kind of quite a natural progression. And also, uh, before I started making slow glass, a friend of mine who made glass, who was making a glass sculpture from broken wine bottles, and she'd been asking people to collect uh, wine bottles for her, and she was going to make, I don't know what the sculpture was, I never saw it, but anyway, she was collecting wine bottles and smashing them, was going to make this sculpture from them. And I bumped into her and I said, how's it going with your sculpture? And she said, oh, I haven't started working on it yet because I've broken the bottles, but I'm just waiting for the glass to get a bit blunter before I start working with them. And I, you know, having already been thinking about the kind of constancy of change in the, in, the, in the world that we don't notice, all of a sudden I discover that glass that we consider to be the most stable of materials actually, you know, does have some kind of, you know, a cut edge yeah. as a chemical, I think it oxidises and becomes slightly, slightly blunter. Um, so that got me interested in, like, reading about the history of glass making and, uh, and, uh, and, and, uh, and, 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 the and, and science technology. And, yeah. uh, and it was about a time, I was coming up to 40 and I was starting to get <laughs> nostalgic. I was, I could, this is my midlife crisis <laughs> film, actually. I'm starting to feel nostalgic about things. <laughs> and I think, oh, God, I sound, I sound like my dad, you know. And, it's like, I'm pretty, and uh, I thought I'd better exercise it. So hopefully there's a, that film is partly to do with, you know, about nostalgia and suspicion yeah. of nostalgia. Yeah. You know? I mean, that's, uh, that's I, important that there's suspicion of nostalgia. Suspicion. Yeah, I really love it. I think it's uh, such a beautiful film about loss and the passing of time and we, we have Ian Bourne here somewhere don't we where's yeah. Ian yeah. Ian's the voice so, so Ian is the uh, narrator but also I read something Ian wrote about the f uh, about not actually about slow glass but about your work and how he, I, I'm paraphrasing him and probably doing that wrong as well but, but, but what stayed with me was this idea of you have so much humour in your work and I think that that stand out and you have so much that, that sort of involves audiences, but so much of your work and Slow Glass is about the passing of time and what's lost, and it's actually very elegiac and moving. And, and I, the little boy, you know, that is that is that the most personal That's film? Me. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. they are all personal yeah. memories, actually, yeah. I have to admit. Yeah. My rosy personal memories. <laughs> <laughs> so my idea really did you step say, what's that going papery, papery, to my yeah. dad on a Friday night. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful. But, um, and how did it feel to... I never licked the window, though. No, well... It, that, no. Kid, that kid just did it, you know. Each to his own. But I quite like this sort of... Because it's about sensuality, you yeah, know. It's about yeah. tactile yeah. tactile experience. And so many actually, of us um, did lick windows. Did so, you? Right, yeah. OK, yeah, right. So right. we... <laughs> we um, but could you, could you just sort of... What did it feel like to involve so much of... Because I, I've read that you don't think Black Tower is at all autobiographical, that you weren't going through a nervous breakdown and people thought you did. But in terms of, uh, uh, in terms of slow, slow glass, how did that feel to insert so much sort of, of that part of you? As a, as a I don't know, really. I got a bit wary of... I think I went a bit over the top in places. I'm sort of... I, I actually... I wanted it to be less, a bit less rosy than it actually looks, because that little boy... He was like quite a gawky-looking, you know, sort of like he wasn't that, you know, it was a bit ugly, really, you know. And then, and then when I got him dressed up and 
down to 50s clothes. Well, isn't he cute? He's so sweet. You know, I didn't want a sweet little child. I wanted some, like, grungy little kid like I was, you know. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so... Um, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. It didn't. I mean, there are other aspects of my other films which are much more to do with personal things, which are kind of more confessional aspects and things like that, which are kind of much more edgy for me. I mean, there's nothing really. I'm complete. I feel completely distanced from from those representations and things. You know. So, uh, yeah. That was, um, I was just. Um, yeah. I was just concerned about making things look too, too cosy. Too but, cosy. Um, but there is there is a sense of I think that in 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 that film and other films of yours the the, the kind of sense of the working class losing its space and mm. play you know and I think the the class element of your film really fascinates me because I think that's why at college I could really sort of relate to them because it was a time it was at a time of I don't know what you call it, grand structuralism, I'd say, where it was quite <laughs> sealed in terms of humour or I felt like I couldn't insert myself in that. So with your films, I felt there was a real accessibility and possibility. Mm. And I think the class thing is, is part of a really important part of that because of a lot of things, even like the tease made, <laughs> you know, and that inserting a tease made in your films. And I don't know. But so talk a bit more about what you feel about that, the class sort of element of it all. It's not something I think, think about, about, but in a way, the films are all very autobiographical. Yeah. So they're kind of about, they relate to kind of how I've experienced the world and, you know, what I've seen around me from, you know, growing up in Walthamstow and then in Hackney and, you know, and seeing, like, these phenomenal changes. Mm. Uh, for me, also a lot to do with the fact that I was very insecure about housing for a really long time until I, you know, I, I managed to buy a flat when I was 40. But, you know, until then I lived in very, I mean, you went to my... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the slum I lived in, <laughs> my Acme house in Lightstone. <laughs> I lived in a house which was falling down for um, quite a long while. Yeah. Um, so, and in a way, when I look back at those films, like, well, Blight, which some of you might have seen, but Slow Glass and The Black Tower, in a way to me they re represent, personally, the, the sense of insecurity about, the, about yeah. the, well, specifically about having somewhere to live. Uh, but um, but uh, you know also. And you do, do show an estate agent's window as well. I do. <laughs> and funnily enough, the flat you see for sale in that estate agent's window is exactly the same as a flat that I bought. The first flat I bought myself years later. I was in '92. I bought my flat about five years later. And the price was half as much as it was in oh. that. In the, I, I bought it. In the, <laughs> that's how I managed to buy a flat. <laughs> Because there was a big I, I, actually went, I actually went to John's house because um, at St. Martin's there was, it was quite hard to get on the equipment and he would rent out to students his steam back to edit our 16 mil films. And, uh, <laughs> um, and we, so I, I, you were out one day and um, well, you were never there actually. Like, I don't know where you were, but <laughs> but um, but but you had some prints, and uh, they were. I, I knew because John was very particular, and so I knew not to um, just watch uh, like show print. But they were like they, they were like seconds. They had something on the you d on the tins that you weren't happy with. So I watched all your films all right. in one day. All the, all that he'd made up to that point, I watched them all, and I realised that I had seen one of your films before I'd ever known it was your film, oh. and before I was at St Martin's, and it was uh, I'd gone to the f what I, somewhere I didn't know. Someone took me, and I saw this film amongst many short films or, you know, art films. And I didn't, I absolutely had no, I, I, I can't remember any, I couldn't remember any of the other films but your one, but I didn't know it was your one. And, um, and it was on. And then when I watched all the films on your Steam Beck, I realised that you had made that film I'd seen all those years before. Oh, really? Yeah, it was uh -huh. a really weird moment. Uh-huh. Yes. I only just found out about this. <laughs> watching all my films um, on the Steam But <laughs> Om, I think, is like the, a distillation of what you do, isn't it? <clears throat> or, or some yeah. of what you do. I don't want to like, um, 
because you do so much, but it feels this idea of we're watching something, thinking it's one thing, and very simply you just turn mm. that on its head. Mm. And, and it's a, a beautiful film in, in that way, but it also, I feel like I do get other things from it, like the character of the person and, mm. the, and your character guiding us through it. When, when, you, when you did OM, what, where did that sort of idea come, you know, where did it start to do something that simple and that Well, funny enough, it came out of, um, I think, me and my girlfriend at the time sort of chanting OM and one of us went tiddly pom. And it made me laugh, and I thought, <laughs> I thought oh, maybe that will happen sometime. And then the London Filmmakers Co-op had a, uh, it was like the, oh, God knows what yeah, anniversary it was, it was 1986, so it was the 20th anniversary of the Filmmakers Co-op, probably. And, um, and they had a 100-foot film, um, uh, what did they do? They planned to have an evening of 100-foot films, and that was people who who were involved in the co-op to make a 100-foot film, so I, I made it for, the, uh, for that. But it's sort of, yeah, having, just having that initial idea, it sort of developed from that. But as you say, it's a distillation of uh, an aspect that's in true and uh, that's, that's present in a lot of my films, which is, you know, making you think you're, listening, you're looking at one thing and, and discovering it's someone else, something else. And in that film, of course, it happens with both hopefully with both the image and the sound, that the sound you know, yeah. gets transferred to the possibility of it being a razor rather than, uh, rather than a voice. So, um, so every element at the beginning of the film turns into something else, you know, incense, cigarette, skin, Buddhist skinhead. Uh, but there was an element that sort of, having had that sort of, uh, you know, just that sort of formal idea, uh, I was interested when I, after having shot it, that to me, when I it became also about kind of judging people by appearances, and uh, and I was quite interested that that character who obviously has the same face at the beginning of the film and the end <laughs> and looks entirely different when his costume changes. You know, so he kind of you know I wouldn't say he looks kind of particularly threatening at the end, but he does he doesn't he, he doesn't feel like the same doesn't feel like the same person. So. That was a that was a kind of important thing for me. It became an important thing. Did you really have a newt? Hmm? Did you really have a newt? Well, only for the film. Oh yeah, okay. What happened to? I had four newts. <laughs> I actually had four newts. Okay. Um, I had four, I had four newts. Uh, I I couldn't decide what. I didn't know anything about newts. Uh, I couldn't decide what kind to get. The Arts Council wanted me to get Ken Livingston to be me. By the way. But, um, you have to expand on that. What, what was? <laughs> you know, Ken Livingston was a newt lover. Do you not oh, know about this? I didn't know he was he a newt. The, the tabloid press used to take the piss out of Ken Livingston because he liked he liked newts. Yeah. Anyway, I won't go into the whole thing of not using Ken Livingston for my film. I decided I'd rather do it myself. Um, the Arts Council did actually push me to contact Ken Livingston, so I reluctantly did. And uh, he wrote back a very nice letter saying, oh, I'd love to do it, but, you know, we're a bit busy with a general election coming up <laughs> in two weeks' time. So, <laughs> so fortunately, uh, I, didn't, I didn't get pressurised after that because he turned down. But I got two kinds of newts. I didn't know how the newts would behave, so I got the alpine. These are alpine. The newt you see in the film is an alpine <laughs> newt. And another newt, which is like a common, much less photogenic newt, actually kind of warty, kind of like not very, not very nice-looking. New, these alpine newts are quite pretty. Um, but anyway, I thought, okay, I've got all, the, all, the, all I've got to do is like put the newt, get the newt to sit still and, you know, go away and, and film. But unfortunately, when we came to film, uh, the, the shot was shot on, a 20, on you know, a 20 to 1 zoom lens. So the close-up, the extreme close-up at the beginning of the film is like, you know, an inch. It's kind of an inch wide of frame which means there's absolutely no depth of field in the shot. So if the new moved, you know, even a tiny bit, it would go completely out of focus. So I did some tests, and it was like hopeless, you know, immediately the new would go out of focus. So, um, so um, I kind of somehow tracked down a new expert who, 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 um, who wasn't, wasn't Ken Livingston, actually, but it was someone else. Uh, and he said, yeah, that's no problem. And he said, well, just put it in the fridge. 
and uh, put it in the fridge for a few hours, and uh, and then it will, you know, it it will keep still for you. And I said, well, isn't that a bit, a bit cruel? You know. He said, no, no, no. He said, it'll just think it's going into hibernation. He said, just don't freeze it. He said, but as long as it's above freezing, it's fine. So I did that. Sure enough, put the put uh, put, put, put the newt um, on the pillow. And uh, but unfortunately, because it had gone into this hibernation state, it just looked dead. <laughs> and it just didn't move. It wasn't breathing, you know, because uh, as you see in the film, it's kind of you know, it's got, it wasn't moving at all. It looked like a stuffed newt. You know, so, so oh shit, you know. So so I rang the guy up and said, look, I've got a problem. You know, it, what you said works, but the newt looks dead. Have you got any other ideas? And he said, yeah, yes, it does. No worries. All you do is put it put it where you want to film it. He said, and put a teacup over it. I don't think it specifically would have to be a teacup. He said, put a teacup over it, so that's in the dark. Yeah? Uh, leave it for a couple of minutes. And then when you take the teacup off, it's going to be kind of dazed. And it will take, you know, quite a few seconds before it starts to move. And, of course, once the camera starts moving out, it doesn't, pulling out, it doesn't matter if it moves. It's just at the, at the, at the highest magnification. Um, so I did that. And sure enough, that worked as well. And... Um, but there were other things that could go wrong with the shot, including like my singing wasn't so great on all of them. Or, you know, I think it was you know, one of the Zoom might not be that smooth and stuff like that. So I ended up having to do quite a few takes. And uh, it was fine with the first few takes. But once we got onto like the fourth take, you know, the teacup comes off the newt and the newt thinks, I know what's going on. I was under a teacup, you know. Um, and, it, and it starts moving straight away, you know. So, uh, so fortunately, I had a second a stunt double newt. And, and I brought the second newt in uh, who hadn't had the teacup experience. And, uh, and, it, and, it, and it worked. It was fine. I actually got a good take. Got a good take. Actually, I got two good takes. And it was just I couldn't decide which, which had the worst singing on it. <laughs> um, but, um, anyway, that's that story. Oh, we, like, we like it. Do you think we should get... Let yeah, probably, ask yeah. I don't know what... Is there a microphone? Oh, yeah. Um, so wait, put your hand up if you'd like to ask a question. Oh, we have a... Thanks. So I, I kind of wanted to maybe slightly cheekily challenge you on saying that you don't care about narrative. Um, because, like, it was really interesting hearing you talk about the Black Tower, and I never kind of heard your opinions or thoughts on it. But for me, and I'm kind of, I'm, I'm sure I'm not alone in this, you know, it's, it feels like just an incredible piece of storytelling. And it is actually, like, a really amazing film, or like a young filmmaker, whatever else to say, you could actually make an incredible in a sense, psychological horror film, although I hate reducing things to genres, but with limitation. And, you know, even with the structural aspects, it could, in a sense, reflect the interiority or the madness or the decline of the kind of reality of the character. And then with the ending, the suggestion that the woman sees it as well, there's a, I feel like it ends on this moment of maybe it is an illusion, maybe there's a truth to it. And I'm, I'm sure I'm not the first person to ask that kind of question, no, yeah, and I'm no, not the last, but no. I'm kind of curious what your reaction is right. to that. Maybe I should clarify what I said. What I mean is, is the specifics of narrative are important to me. The effect of narrative is important. So what I meant was, you know, that basically those locations are determined by where I could see the tower. Um, so so the, 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 the shape of the narrative is dictated by... The, uh, the places where the tower could be could, to, could be seen, and uh, so um, no, of course I'm I'm very very interested in you know wanting to make uh, make something which people get involved in, but uh, but what has interested me over the years is very often people you know are are interested in the in, in the in the specific the specifics of the narrative, and, um, and uh, as I think Carol implicated a minute ago, people say to me you know have you had um, you know, sort of mental um, issues of your own, or worked in situations with people who do have those kind of issues, and um, and uh, I guess um, if I have, I haven't noticed it. But, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I, your work is the catharsis. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a kind of paranoia that one has in terms of one lo how one looks at the world. I think for, for good reason. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I quite often will interpret things in such a way to give them a significance which might not be um, what they're 
what their dominant meaning is or intention. But um, so, yeah, no, I think I, I, I think the I sort of underplay the narrative thing because people take that as being the most important thing, and actually it kind of it's part of it. It's it's, it's part of it. But it definitely is very much well. It's fundamental to it is this idea of being, hopefully, the viewer becoming kind of psychologically immersed in the narrative and then kind of distanced from it and then immersed again. So, so uh, yeah. Thank you. Um, your work is very suggestive of. Uh, timelessness and time present and time past being the same thing or part of the same thing. Um, T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets comes to mind as a pretentious reference point perhaps to expand upon. I was wondering how consciously you've thought about that, if at all, and um, if not his work, then whose have you looked at? Well, I haven't read the four quartets, although I would have liked to have done. I have made a film relating to the wasteland, but that's um, taking a little bit of text from the wasteland, which I'm reciting in a pub toilet and, uh, and equating. Because uh, T.S. Eliot is an anagram of toilets, you may well know. Um, and uh, and I, I recite a, a part from the wasteland in a, in a pub toilet, uh, which I make very direct connections to the poem, like... Um, the um, the river bears no cigarette ends, uh, handkerchief. I can't remember. Whilst looking at the trough of the urinal, and, uh, I pan across the condom machine, and as a, the nymphs have departed. And, uh, <laughs> so it's very, it's very. Um, I'm sorry, I'm being flippant, but um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but I must read the rest of it one day, <laughs> and four quartets people take. <laughs> but the element of time is absolutely the passing of time is is kind of fundamental, and it gets more and more as time goes. I mean, I show old my old work quite a lot, so I, and you know, and I appear in a lot of the films. My voice is in a lot of the films, so I'm so aware of time passing. If people sort of say, "Oh, when was such and if people are talking about dates and say, well, "When did that happen?" I think, "Oh, that was when I was making slow glass, so that must have been around about nineteen late eighties or ninety and the, actually, my films are the closest thing I've got to a clock to actually being able to locate other things in time um, that's um, but it's it's it it's strange i mean the the uh the one of the oldest films I made from called Girl Chewing Gum, shot in Dalston in 1976. Uh, I ended up remaking that in 2011 uh, and made a film called The Man Phoning Mum, uh, where I basically <coughs> tried to recopy all the camera movements in the same location and superimpose it on the original uh, and you know, make this comparison between Dalston in 1976 and 2011. And um, that was a, a fascinating uh, thing to do, not least because of realising, even in 2011, how every second person had a mobile phone and they walked by, and, the, and how much it affected the sense of any kind of interaction or lack of interaction of people in the street, and that kind of people in their own world was very comparing to the... the 1976 film where people are looking around them, and then, but um, yeah, this time, this, this time is um, it's very strange. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can't believe I, I, as you know, this series of films is called you know, 50 films from 50 years. I can't quite believe I make, been making films for 50 years, but I, but I had a worst revelation a while ago <laughs> several years ago I realised that I was more than half as old as cinema you know and it's like <laughs> I thought oh fuck's sake you know it's like Jesus you know, it's like, <laughs> that's bad isn't it you know? <laughs> when I showed my, my film The Girl Chewing Gum um, 
gets shown quite a lot in kind of educational situations and, and not just in colleges but in schools as well. And uh, a, a while ago I was sort of ego searching myself on the internet and, and uh, came across some, some uh, blog, uh, some blogs that some school kids had written about the film. And, uh, and they wrote things like one of them said, oh, it was made before colour film was invented. <laughs> uh, another one said it was made before editing was invented. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it made me laugh. But, of course, I think back now, that, you know, if you're like 15 years old and you're looking at a film made in 1976, it's ancient yeah. history. It might as well be the Lumiere brothers, you know. It's like... <laughs> Uh, you know, it's all it's all back there <laughs> in the olden days. <laughs> yeah, I have a question. Um, I guess I'm pretty new to your work, and like you partly already answered to my question that I had, which is about like the difference in making movies that you made before and the ones that you're making now. Because I haven't seen the one that you released recently through movie, but I wonder there was such a part of imagination in your work. And I guess also the means that you used allowed for more like curiosity and like the means that you were going to use to create the effects, like how you were talking about the structure and like the different angles, because mm. there was no science fiction back then. So my question is more so like how do you keep on using that sense of like imagination um, with all of the means that we have today? Well, I do it less than less. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't have ideas very often, <laughs> and uh, and I kind of only you know I only like to make work if I think I'm going to be doing something new. So I mean I haven't made a film this year, apart from the trailer. <laughs> so yeah, that's not really doesn't really count, does it? <laughs> um, but um, but uh, no different. It, it, various things affect how one makes the work. I mean for me technology plays a very big part in it. The, the available technology. And how one how one deals with uh, deals with that. I mean, I'm sort of I call myself a kind of cottage industry filmmaker. I don't like to use anybody else unless I really have to. <laughs> so I try and do everything myself. And of course, having the advent of a computer, uh, things one can do in in uh, edit, editing program on a computer are sort of um, well, not things that weren't possible in the past, and sometimes. Um, that things like that open up new possibilities. I mean, it's funny when I show a film like Slow Glass, that film's all shot on 16mm film, and um, nowadays it, it, it's nothing sort of special to see two shots that are exactly matched at the same place at different times. But because uh, if you don't get them quite right, you can move it around on a computer. You can't do that with film. Shots have to be exactly the same. So I went through this bizarre, uh, very, very laborious procedure to be able to actually match so those did you shots. So the rear view mirror and things like that? Was that all matted? That was done in the yeah. camera. Well, the rear yeah, view mirror so was done in the camera. Really so I blacked yeah. out the windscreen yeah. of the car, which was a bit dangerous. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so you shot on a Bolex camera, so yeah. the, the, films, yeah. the films all shot with the view in the wind, with, with the, yeah. through the windscreen with the mirror blacked out, and then the windscreen was blacked out, and the mirror. Uh, you might notice in the, the shot in the mirror is on a straight road. Yeah. Uh, the reason being <laughs> that you couldn't see through the windscreen. <laughs> so uh, my friend Patrick, who was driving the car, was, uh, had his head out of the window. It's the reason that lots and lots of cars are building up behind as well. And uh, Ian says, oh, he's right up my arse, that bloke. It's because we're driving along at 20 miles an hour on a road which I later discovered was called Murder Mile because of the number of road accidents that occur on it. <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, but, but the, the, the match shots of the shops changing and things like that, that's, they were done by basically filming and then getting the negative processed and then putting the negative in the gate of the camera and using a little thing called a gate focuser to look through the frame of negative and then move the camera around so it's like a bas relief until it kind of lines up exactly. But of course one had to go back to exact put the camera in exactly, exactly the same place. And, so and it did all this stuff like put a so nail in the yeah. <laughs> nail in the pavement between two paving yeah. stones, measure the exact height of the yeah. camera lens, 
right down the focal area. <laughs> I couldn't, I just couldn't Video was do a that. revelation to you. Yeah, it was quite yeah. handy, actually. I think, I think things you made a really long film after that, didn't you? When you got video, your films got longer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and cheaper. Yeah. And quicker. <laughs> very, very quick, rather wicked question, but might we look forward to a film of the title nearly half as old as cinema? <laughs> there's, there's your idea. Okay, I'll have a think about that one. Well, it was uh, the last Q and A we had here. Somebody asked about recording a Christmas album. So uh, these things will probably happen. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want you to make a film about what happened last night. <laughs> so I, I inadvertently ran into John last night, and I didn't expect to. And I'd gone to this event, like what was it, an, op an art opening? And um, John arrived. I'm like, I'm seeing you tomorrow. This is amazing. And but before he came in, he'd gone to the wrong event, and it was a red carpet event. And um, he was so insistent he was in the right place. They let him in, and you videoed inside. <laughs> I thought that was it sort was of bizarre. <laughs> I was sort of disorientated. It was like. It was some. It was. It was. It was a Somerset House. This opening. This show, curated by uh, Ian and Jane um, Forsyth and um, Pollard. Uh, Pollard. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, so I went to this opening, which was some. But yeah, and actually on the embankment, which is where the entrance was, there was also this other place. It was actually a club. It was like a cabaret club. <laughs> I can't believe that, because I, I walked past it later when I came back out. I thought, how did I think that was the exhibition opening, you know? And there were all these people kind of very, very dressed up in um, ambiguous clothing. It was sort of burlesque club. And I went in and all these people sort of gyrating around on tables and things. And I thought, well, it doesn't feel right. I'm not sure. But... Um, but I'd, um, I'd really, I was quite pleased I'd blagged myself in because they were really betting people. I thought, why have they got these really heavy bouncers on the door for Somerset House? You know, why can't I wear my trailers? <laughs> um, do we have, we must have more questions. Did they let you in because you're half as old as cinema? Do you think that was why they let you Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that, that <laughs> you was, just have it, a big badge It definitely now. would have been that. Yeah. It definitely would have been being half as old as cinema. Age does have its advantages every few years. <laughs> um, I just wanted to ask, um, you mentioned about audiences quite a lot. Um, and I guess just, you know, if you have any idea of how the films that you made for television were received at the time by audiences. Because obviously, you know, you've got people just flicking through, well, the four channels that you had at the time and uh, just stumbling across, you know, one of your films and uh, how, I guess, that compares to, you know, an audience like us in the cinema, like the kind of differences in reception, I suppose. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, well, I, I try and keep it brief. I've got quite a few stories I could tell about that. But the first time I made a film that was shown... Um, actually, the second time, right? The second time I made a film that was shown on TV, I was commissioned to make... Um, Strangely, I mean, things have changed so much. Uh, just after I left uh, the film school at Royal College, I got asked to make a half-hour documentary for Thames TV, which was a kind of, you know, London uh, ITV channel, uh, but, you know, showing to millions of people, like Greater London and around. Uh, for, I was asked to make a half-hour film that would be shown in um, at 6 o'clock in the evening... <laughs> Like, you know, sort of prime time TV. And, uh, and I made this film, which is sort of anti-documentary, and it, uh, called Hackney Marshes, and I was sort of playing around with lots of different ideas in it. I won't go into the details of it. It revolved around um, filming uh, in, some, in and around some high-rise flats on Hackney Marshes. And um, the, but the film, like The Black Tower, as I was talking about earlier... Uh, the intention of the film is, the, and like most of my films, it always reminding you that you're looking at something which is, which is an artifice, you know, which is something which is constructed. Uh, and anyway, I thought it would might stir things up on TV a bit. I was quite happy to get complaints about it. I, you know, wanted to make something which might agitate a little bit. And uh, but after it was made, the um, uh, 
There was no response at all, apart from uh, the producer a couple of weeks later said to me, he said, oh, John, I've got a letter for you written by somebody who saw the programme. And, um, and he gave me this piece of paper written on a little piece of Basildon Bond notepaper that you know, my auntie used to write letters on. And in this sort of like, sort of quite sort of scratchy hand, it says, um, Dear Sir, we were watching your film, Hackney Marshes, last week, and we were taken into a tall building. Now, bear in mind, this is kind of anti-illusionism, what I'm trying to uh, suggest in the film. So they were taken into a small building, so uh, there was definitely a psychological immersion in this place. Uh, I said, we were taken into this, small bu- in this tall building, and a lady in one of the flats showed us the alarm lock on her door. Uh, we've tried in all the shops, but we've had a bit of trouble recently. Uh, we've been trying to get one. We can't get one anywhere. Uh, can you tell us where we might be able to buy one? Uh, so that was, that, that was the, uh, uh, the effect. And I realised at that point that it really is... To actually do anything on television which will shake anything up, you have to, you have to do something quite dramatic. Now, interestingly, the film you saw tonight, The Black Tower, that was shown on TV... Uh, late at night on Channel 4 without any particular introduction. And that got loads of complaints. <laughs> and the interesting thing about that was those complaints were, uh, at that time, they were generally phoned in. And you know, people would phone in if they were incensed by something they were seeing on television. So they'd phone in during the programme and then somebody would take what they called a duty log and they'd write down people's comments. And almost all of these comments were... What's going on? I can't see. There's no image on my screen. My screen's my screen's red. Um, why wasn't there a warning given out about this before it was shown? Uh, I don't pay my license fee for this. It must have been Nadine Doris actually, because uh, <laughs> of course nobody pays their license fee for Channel Four. Um, but, um, but that was interesting, and uh, I realised that um, that was caused a bit of subversion. I mean, interesting later, I don't know if Derek Jarman's blue got any you know, complaints, but um, maybe it was kind of contextualised when they was. showed it. They, they, would, gave, have, they, they would have told you something about it. Them. But I really like the thing of, thing of not knowing. I mean, I really like disorientation, but other people's work that I like is usually stuff where I'm not quite sure what I'm looking at for a while, you know, I mean, I, can, I don't want to be so alienated by it that I can't connect with it, but, but I like to be kind of like a little bit, you know, maybe not sure whether something is factual or fiction or, you know. Um, but, um, <clears throat> what were I going to say? Oh, oh, I lost it, I don't know. Well, I think yeah. you'd finished anyway. So I've finished. It's all right. <laughs> yeah, I've got to finish it. But um, <laughs> I don't know how much time we've got. Are we... No. Okay, I want to ask one last question. Go one last question. One last question. John, what's it, what's it been like to be called John Smith? Because you, you kind of deal with the everyday, you take the everyday, you transform it, extraordinary, all that, but what's it been like to be called John Smith all your life? Uh, well, funnily enough, I'm, I'm just about to... I've decided I'm going to write something about this. Oh, I didn't know that. And um, I'm going to be honest about how fucked up I am by having that name. Because <laughs> I kind of make a joke about it. But I, I hate, I, you know, I hated my parents growing up because I was called John Smith. And uh, my father actually had. Um, I was originally going to be called Ian Smith, but Ian my my cousin was born a couple of weeks before me, and he got called Ian. So my parents had to come up with something imaginative quickly. <laughs> and, uh, and but actually, in retrospect, I was quite glad I didn't call, get called Ian Smith because at that time, when I was growing up, Ian Smith was the you know, prime minister of apartheid Rhodesia, and now Zimbabwe. Yeah? Uh, so I wouldn't have wanted to be Ian Smith either. But but but, um, but I hated my parents for calling me John Smith, of course. And uh, but my dad had an interesting middle name. His 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 dad his dad. His dad's, my dad's dad's middle name was Gibbon, and uh, I never got to the bottom of that. But my dad's middle name was Lyle, and uh, and I remember going across my dad as a teenager and saying, "Oh, you know, kind of, why did you give me that stupid name? At least you've got an interesting, you know, middle name, Dad. You know, your middle name's Lyle." I said, "You know, your parents had a bit of imagination." He said, "No, actually," I said. He said, "I was born in the um, maternity hospital in Canning Town." 
uh, which was right next to the Tate and Lyle sugar factory. And out of, out of the window, out of the window of the ward, there was this great big word, Lyle. And that's how my dad got his middle name. <laughs> so we come from, I come from a very imaginative family. Anyway. <laughs> um, are you allowed to ask your question? I was given a microphone, no, yeah. Um, you mentioned Derek Jarman. Um, I was just wondering... Um, quite big fans of you both um, and I, I didn't know when that film in Dungeness was made but right. was was he there by that point or uh, yeah but I didn't know it okay it's right. quite interesting <laughs> that, I, that I chose that house because it was black you know because it's all about you know black and white negative positive and things like that so I found a, a white house that I, it was white and a house that was black and I did know that that he had a uh, he had a house there because we were talking about um whether we could get in touch, we didn't really know him, but get in touch with him and see whether we, maybe we could stay there because he wasn't living there and we weren't filming there for a week. Um, but because um, it was part of um, a production, actually, first stage at the ICA Theatre called Dungeness, the Desert in the Garden, directed by Graham Miller. Um, and, uh, and I made the films for, for this show. But anyway, that's another story. But it was it was only years, and it was probably twenty five years later that I looked at that film and thought, oh, that's that's Prospect Cottage. I didn't realise because <laughs> since then they changed the windows, and you know, it's like it does look does look different now. But it, if you look very closely, you can see it does actually even say Prospect Cottage there. But uh, but that's a film I very rarely show. I haven't shown that. It's like that a sibling of Black Tower. It's like your yeah. manic Black Tower. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just the same. Yeah. I mean, as I've said to people before, I think some of these other screens. One of the sort of scary things about showing so much work is that, you know, it shows that you have the same idea that you repeat <laughs> again and again ad, ad infinitum in different ways, you know, so that's made at the same time as the Black yeah, Tower, you know, I kind of, of it, yeah. It's yeah. like you have to get it out of your system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, well, I okay. think we, it, to me, you are the John uh, to me, you are the John Smith, and I know to many people here, you are the John Smith, so uh, never change your name. Well, if you do, make it really good. Anyway. I'll, just quick, I'll just quickly say, well, the, re yeah. the reason I didn't change my yeah, name to begin with yeah. was that the first time I ever showed my work publicly was at the London Filmmakers Co-op. And at that time, uh, uh, an experimental filmmaker, some of you have heard of, called Malcolm McGrice, he wrote kind of previews of shows for Time Out magazine. And he came, and I was still at the Royal College at the time, he came and looked at my films at the Royal College uh, as a preview for the show, and he said, I think the films are great, I really like your work, can I give you a bit of advice, change your name. <laughs> and I thought, Mr Malcolm LeGrice, <laughs> fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, brilliant, John Smith. <laughs>